You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to our 146th program of Think Again. Think Again is presented to you by Borderlands Cooperative, an organization that has been dedicated to social change for 25 years. I'm Jacques Poulet. And I'm Jennifer Burrell. Today we're looking at the history of nuclear arms and nuclear military strategy from World War II to the present. Mm, That's right. In March this year, we had a program on displacement, including displacement caused by war. In that program, I referred to a book called The Shortest History of War by Gwyn Dyer, which cited the three biggest threats to war as climate change, changing superpowers and nuclear proliferation. We've talked quite a bit in this program about climate change and changing superpowers. Most recently, a few of our programs explored the problems coming with the US's manoeuvrings to hold on to its global dominance. Yeah, whilst the US global manoeuvrings were quite mad and sometimes even ridiculous under Trump with his ostentations ostentatious but really directionless showmanship Mm. under Biden these maneuverings for global power have only continued it is partly as a distraction of course from US internal issues and partly because of the reactivation of the Clinton Obama global military ideology and the associated strategy Mm. so that's a bit of a mouthful Jacques the Clinton Mm. Obama global military ideology and strategy. So what do you mean by that? Can you just well, explain? Well, in the mid-90s, uh, under the, he Clinton, the man Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, a policy started where the United States, after the fall of the USSR, wanted to reaffirm its global power and its global dominance, basically, with the rise of the United Europe, China and Russia. And that mm-hmm. was... That was sort of the accompanying global military stra- ideology and strategy I was referring to. Uh-huh. And it is particularly also to do with Australia's present government seems seeming quite prepared, enthusiastically so, to become complicit in this strategy as yeah. it desperately tries to cling on to its membership in the Anglosphere. Yeah, so the Anglosphere meaning the English-speaking powers like US, UK and Canada? That's right, yep. You know, Australia is desperate to remain in that Anglo power grouping politically, economically, culturally and militarily, for example, in the AUKUS and the Quad arrangements. Yeah, well, we have talked a bit about AUKUS and the security pact for the Indo-Pacific region we recently signed, in which the US and the UK will help Australia famously or infamously, get nuclear-powered submarines. So that's very relevant for our program today. 
And I guess beside that debacle, we hear a bit less about the Quad, which is Australia's partnership with India, Japan and the US, also for the Indo-Pacific region. Mm. And of course, Australia's desperation and our associate membership in NATO, however far away we are from the North Atlantic for which NATO was initially conceived, we obviously want to remain under the assumed protection of our strong friend, the US, Mm. as we have been arguing in previous programs on AUKUS, on China and on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But for today's program, we'll focus on nuclear arms proliferation only. Yes, and how nuclear arms proliferation is is really part and parcel of the acceleration in conflict situations between the major competing global powers that we're seeing now. A dangerous acceleration in conflict that does seem to be deliberate. So for a short potted history of nuclear arms, let's start in the late 1940s following World War II. World War II is known as a conventional war with large land, sea and air armies fighting each other for control over territory. So we've all seen lots of that in movies Mm -hmm. (laughs) since World War II, really. During the final months of World War II and later, two other types of war came into prominence. Uh, So one was, well, smaller scale guerrilla warfare and terrorism. And the war against terrorism often also leading to civil wars, which are happening in many parts of the world. Mm, That's right. And the other type of war coming into focus since World War II is nuclear. And that includes dropping nuclear bombs and also the testing and further proliferation of nuclear weaponry and all the military strategizing associated with nuclear weapons. It should, of course, be briefly noted that we still fail to recognise the European colonial invasions as wars against Indigenous populations and the ongoing occupation of their lands as really ongoing wars. Yeah. The only use of nuclear weapons in declared war has been by the US at the end of World War II. So Germany, of course, had surrendered to the Allies and the focus of war moved to the Pacific Then in 1945, the US dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, in spite of clear signs of their near defeat. Mm. Hundreds of thousands of civilians were killed in these atomic bombings, with the cities razed to the ground and the human toll and trauma lasting for generations up to today. The devastation was really shocking and people became generally aware of what nuclear weapons are really capable of. Yeah, and today's quote-unquote improved nuclear arsenal is capable Mm. of much, much worse devastation, and not just at the immediate targets or locations where those weapons are being dropped. This awareness has informed various peace movements and also the strategizing by different global powers since, since, since then, albeit albeit that it to a different degrees and in different ways. Yeah. On that note, we'll have a break. We'll go to Maralinga by Paul Kelly and continue after that. This is a rainy land This is a rainy land 
I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua.
You're listening to Think Again, 3CR 855 AM on your dial, 3CR Digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Today we're talking about nuclear weapons and strategizing from World War II to the present and to Ukraine. Yeah, so continuing from before the break with our potted history after World War II, the two superpowers that emerged were the US and the USSR, as we know. And Europe was divided into antagonistic spheres of influence, pretty much along the lines of where the army stopped at the end of that mm. war, which is rather arbitrary and crazy when you think of it. Mm. Between World War II and the dissolution of the USSR in 1991, which ended the time of the Cold War, Successive political and military strategies took hold and evolved over time. And I mean with that, political and military strategies involving nuclear weapons, their deployment, and the possible or threatened use of those weapons. Yeah, so nuclear weapons seem to be on everyone's minds, at least in military circles and in international politics. So the central question was given the power of nuclear weapons, the central question was how to use nuclear weapons without them causing complete or near-complete obliteration, including the destruction of your own country. For example, when the enemy would retaliate after you unleashed the first strike. So nuclear weapons are so destructively powerful that even if a tiny fraction of nuclear missiles could evade your own missile defence system or shield, it, it could still mean complete or large obliteration of your own country and people. So, so you'd have to think, was this a fundamental game changer in political military think, thinking, this power of nuclear weapons? And I guess the answer is yes and no. <laughs> that was Nuclear capability would seem to make conventional war involving land, air and sea armies fighting head-to-head. It seemed to... Um, nuclear weapons would seem to make that con- type of conventional war obsolete. Yet they're still happening and they're happening a lot. Also, they're um, by the major powers, which are nuclear-armed. Yes, well, these weapons are so powerful that caution has to be exercised in using them or even in threatening to use them. So far, with the important exception of Japan in 1945, as we already mentioned. In addition, military planners have held on to the idea of limited use of nuclear weapons in in enduring conventional war. Mm, yeah, so they didn't want to let go of the idea of conventional mm. war. So somehow the idea that you could merge them both, that nuclear war didn't replace conventional war. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's work out how we can have them both. So the idea that a limited use of nuclear weapons um, is, is the idea that it's viable is really important. Uh, tracking some strategic military thinking since World War II, uh, alarmingly, according to... Quinn Dyer again, the US has had a policy of mass retaliation from the end of World War II to the late 1950s. So this meant keeping the Soviet military in check by the threat of using nuclear weapons first on Soviet cities and their civilian populations in response to any unacceptable act 
even non-nuclear. So, so then the US had the ability to point a nuclear weapon on every missile silo, uh, silo sorry, site, I mean, and small town in the Soviet Union. Mm. Just That was basically just following the initial example of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, where, where that did happen. And this mass retaliation strategy had no hint as to what act would be unex- so unacceptable as to provoke a nuclear onslaught. Mm-hmm. And remember, it didn't have to be nuclear. That's right. Um, this was the first nuclear strike policy of the US at the time, set to kill innumerable thousands of innocent civilians, which is really crazy cowboy stuff when you think of it, or at least psychopathic regime stuff, mm. that they'd have such a policy. Yep. Feeling threatened by the nuclear capability of both major Cold War powers, other nations then felt the need for nuclear weaponry for deterrence, and that mm-hmm. was specifically France, France and Britain, and to a lesser extent China. Israel, with the help of the US, did the same, but they did it secretly. Uh Thus, we have the paradoxical and in its own right destructive development and testing of devastating nuclear weaponry alongside the idea of deterrence and peace. Yeah. uh, With that strange idea that we have to develop military and nuclear capacity to keep the peace. And how destructive the nuclear testing has been is no news for the people in Marolinga, in Australia and in French Polynesia who were displaced by the English English and French tests respectively, supposedly in peacetime. But whose peacetime was that? Mm, That's right. So going back to nuclear strategizing after World War II, in 1961, Kennedy became US president and an alternative to mass retaliation was developed for the use of nuclear weapons. So this had a name. This was called the Single Integrated Operational Plan, or SIOP. It still involved a first nuclear strike by the US, but it was a limited strike and not targeted at cities, at least limited in theory. It was meant to allow for pauses whereby opposing powers could negotiate a settlement so it di- so the conflict didn't have to be escalated. And famously, this was all put to the test in 1962 when the USSR leader, Khrushchev, placed shorter-range missiles in Cuba. The US demanded the missiles be withdrawn or it would invade Cuba. In fact, Kennedy didn't implement the SIOP strategy of first strike and Khrushchev capitulated and withdrew the missiles. So there was, thankfully, there was caution exercised on both sides. Luckily, the US hadn't realised that there were nuclear, that the nuclear warheads were already in Cuba at the time. The US had thought the nuclear warheads were on their way by sea. So it was very fortunate that the first strike policy was not implemented. Yeah, which really exposes the folly of the idea of a limited nuclear war and how precariously we stand on the brink of being hit by these weapons and its consequences. Mm. I personally remember that period of time and how the term and I quote, mutually assured destruction 
or MAD as an acronym, was coined by Kennedy's U.S. Secretary of Defense, McNamara, in 1962, and it became the accepted doctrine of military military strategy and of national security policy of the U.S. And Chuck, do you think the acronym MAD would have told them something? It didn't. (laughs) It took took as given that a full-scale use of nuclear weapons by two or more opposing sides would cause the complete annihilation of both the attacker and the defender. Mm. The number of warheads on both sides of the Cold War were seven Several thousands, several sorry, several tens of thousands, mm. about thirty thousand each, and that would have the capability to destroy the world about seventy-nine times over, and that's when it became, when I became a pacifist. Yeah. But still, in spite of the madness and in spite of the fact that the Cold War presumably was finished in nineteen ninety, a twenty twelve Rand Corporation study still commented that, and I quote, deterrence from mutually assured destruction is still said to be the safest course to avoid nuclear warfare. And what a sentence that is, Jacques. I'd go, deterrence from mutually assured destruction is the safest course to avoid nuclear warfare. Oh, my gosh. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, in 1968, then, we saw the attempt to somehow address the threat to the world posed by nuclear weaponry with five uh, nuclear powers, not including Israel, signing a nuclear non-proliferation treaty, agreeing not to send or sell the weapons to other countries. And over 100 other countries agreed not to develop nuclear weapons. So that's 1968. President Nixon and USSR leader Brezhnev agreed in 1971 to start doing something to reduce the number of warheads. And in the late 1980s, moving along a bit, the US and the USSR signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. Finally, in 1988, US President Reagan declared that the Cold War between the US and the USSR was over, but neither dismantled their nuclear capacity. And unlike the Warsaw Pact, NATO did not disband. Of course, the Warsaw Pact was NATO's equivalent and I guess counterbalance as the defence treaty the Soviet Union had with other Eastern Bloc Mm. socialist republics. Mm. Yeah, so we need to really remember that the Warsaw Pact ended but NATO continued and even expanded, as we talked about in previous programs. And this expansion by NATO has been key in the development and in the understanding of the war in Ukraine. Yeah. So in the present day, the idea of so-called limited nuclear war has been publicly reintroduced. This is from an article in The Age titled... Uh, Moscow flags nuclear move if NATO grows. And I have the date for that, I think. That was the 16th of April. Mm-hmm. Actually, it is the CIA. It talks about the CIA flagging a nuclear move by Moscow. Talking about the conflict in Ukraine, the director of the CIA said, quote, given the potential desperation of President Putin and the Russian leadership, given the setbacks they've faced so far militarily, 
none of us can take lightly the threat posed by a potential resort to tactical nuclear weapons or low-yield nuclear weapons, unquote. As all all too often happens, politics increasingly boils down to ascribing bad intentions to your opposition and which then justifies your own aggression. Yeah, making your own aggression look like defence. That's or right. preemptive defence shark. Right. That's right. <laughs> and so, oh, I better not say that phrase. I might start using yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. And since then, anyway, uh, Russians, Russia's foreign minister, Lavrov, has accused the US of fighting a proxy war with it through, its mili- through the US's military support of Ukraine. And um, he was warning Ukraine against provoking World War III and saying the threat of nuclear war should not be underestimated. So that is coming from Russia, and that was the age 27th of April. Importantly, another danger zone for nuclear war is very close to home. Worse still, it actually is and has been already at home in our country, the expansion of the Pine Gap global spying installations near Alice Springs. Mm-hmm. Pine Gap is a US-Australian intelligence base, and we are supporting the US in expanding its capability to detect Chinese space vehicles from space and potentially destroy them. Yeah, of course, in the process, making ourselves a target while also engaging and becoming part of an expanding adversarial strategy with other world powers. Mm, That's right. Our still defence minister, Peter Dutton, has been rehashing 5th century Roman politician and writer Vigetius and his well-known adage that if you want peace, prepare for war. As we know, a few years later, the Roman Empire had fallen. So it was not a good omen to say that. Mm. And Dutton is also rather selective about the use of this dictum, ignoring more realistic politicians and the growing peace movements, changing the dictum to, if you want peace, prepare for peace. Mm -hmm. So instead, Dutton's federal government winds back spending on diplomacy as well as on foreign affairs and economic aid and on internet, um, sorry, go on, Sha. Yeah, and on international engagement in the United Nations and other peace efforts, as evident from the last budget we commented on in early April. That's Is right. it any wonder that the Pacific nations have become disinclined to engage with Australia, being regularly insulted and neglected, whilst being referred to as our Pacific family mm. by politicians? And how cynical is that? Yeah, and is it any wonder that the Solomon Islands recently signed a deal with China? Shouldn't shouldn't we also wonder about the war-friendly inclinations of the powerful friends we choose as our partners to defend ourselves against possible attacks? Like the US shark. (laughs) That's right. Arthur Charpentier, who's a French uh, now working from from Canada, from uh, an organization called Freakonometrics, He has discovered a really interesting statistic that America has been at war for 93% of its time as a nation. Wow. 222 years out of 239 Mm. till 2017. The U.S. have only been at peace for less than 20 years total since its birth. That's incredible. Mm. 
we don't hear much about that, which I guess is no. why it sounds so surprising. That's right. That's a war That's nation. Right. Yeah. Yep. So I guess overall, imagine, Jacques, if we spent the same money on mm-hmm. waging peace as on waging and preparing for war. Yes. What sort of world could we be creating together? Yeah, indeed. Uh, and to work with others on peace, it would be really good if listeners would start to read up on the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network or IPAN, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash IPAN dot org dot AU forward slash. The IPAN, as you probably know or remember, got a Nobel Prize for Peace about two years ago, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to Think Again on 3CR Community Radio. If you want to comment on today's program, you can email Borderlands, borders at borderlands.org.au. Our past programs are available on podcast and the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Thanks again to Clive Bourne for recording, music selection and technical production. Meanwhile, stay tuned for Jailbreak, which gives a voice to our brothers and sisters in prison. To bring us into this program, please enjoy Milku Mana by King Stingray. Together and sit down by the fire. Man, I got-